Welcome to the XY Advisor Podcast. To join a global community of financial advisors sharing and learning with one another to drive the positive evolution of financial advice, head to xyadvisor.com. Both Zurich and OnePath life insurance offerings deliver the broadest range of offerings in the market with a combined four distinct solutions on offer to better serve all Australians. At Zurich and OnePath, we believe in the value of advice and the professionals who provide it. This means investing in more ways to help your clients and making it easier for you to do business with us. To find out more about how we can help you and your clients, contact your Zurich and OnePath life or Zurich Investments representative today. G'day, g'day, how's it going? What do you know? Striker like Clayton here from XY Advisor. Um, during this mental health uh, series, I've discussed a huge amount of topics from prevention, um, and there's been a bunch of really cool tips and tricks in there. Uh, I've brought on Matt Morris here. We've been mates for a long time, and I know he does a lot of good work in terms of that overall sort of view of the impacts of mental health issues to society. So I thought I'd bring him on just to discuss uh, a couple of things in relation to how advisors can help. And also we've got a really cool insurance um, document and study that we want to bring up. So Matt, thanks for coming on. Not a problem, Clayton. Um, So you've been working uh, with, you know, people with mental health issues for a long time. It goes without saying um, that you have a, a really good, um, bird's eye view of, I guess, the impact of mental health. And before we started recording, we we're just talking about how it's good that financial advisors are thinking about this type of stuff because it goes to show how much society's view of mental health has changed and is changing. And um, and we were discussing how I think advisors are in a unique position to identify, certainly not solve. We're not trained psychologists, but identify when uh, our clients are going through mental health issues. And traditionally it has been, Hey, uh, let's get you a lot of money in the event. It's called insurance life, you know, life insurance, permanent disability insurance, income protection insurance. There's a lot of money type things that we can do. And that's kind of been the job. Um, But I think that there's probably a lot more advisors can do. And so uh, that's, that's what kicked off this series. Um, on the flip side of uh, not solving it, and I guess I kind of wanted to open up the view of someone like yourself, and that is what happens if advisors don't take a chance at, at talking to their clients about this type of stuff? How bad is it? How bad are mental health problems on society? And should we be doing everything we can to reduce them? Yeah, look, absolutely. Um, And thanks for that introduction, Clayton. I'm a social worker. I've been working with families for the last 15 years or so, um, specifically in child protection and supporting families with young kids. But definitely when we think about mental health, um, all social workers, psychologists, health practitioners are thinking about the mental health of our clients. Um, Definitely, I think that it has a huge impact on all outcomes in life. And I mean, mental health is huge, yeah. It's, it's lots of 
um, phrases thrown around like mental health, mental illness, um, and I don't know who else you've interviewed and what kind of definitions that you're working off. When I think of mental health, I think of it kind of as a parallel to physical health that um, and kind of breaks down some of the stigma as well because when we think of mental health, lots of people think that it's you know bad, it's taboo, we shouldn't go there, we shouldn't talk about it. That's definitely changing. Now it is kind of being talked about more like physical health, that you know, we have very healthy people, we have people who could be healthier and we have people who actually need um, care or treatment by a doctor. And I think it's the same with mental health, that um, there's a whole continuum that everyone is placed on and, and we even move across and we can move across daily, weekly or throughout our lives. Um, I think the an Australian survey was done on mental health in Australia a couple of years ago that found that 45% or half of Australians will experience um, a mental illness at some point in their life. Um, and I guess when we're getting into the mental illness side of the continuum, that's things like depression and anxiety. Um, similar to, I guess, our physical health, that you might have periods of life where you're not as healthy or um, you face certain diseases or chronic conditions that you need treatment for. Um, and I think mental health is very similar to physical health, that it can have a huge burden on our, on our society um, at that macro level, but on us as individuals and our ability to, you know, look after our households, our families, um, go to school, hold down jobs and contribute. Yeah, it's, it's one of those things uh, and financial stress is always at the top of the list, right, in terms of what, what causes mental illness um, or at least what highly contributes to, to um, stress and uh, anxiety and depression. And considering advisor's role in, in all of this, you know, we're, we're often the first people to, to speak to our clients that are going through tough times. Um, it's an interesting position to be in. And so um, I remember once we had a chat and it was about, uh, it was essentially an insurance company had, or it was an insurance company or hospital or something. Um, and they did a huge study on, mental health. And I, the reason why I really liked this study is because I feel insurance companies are probably the best barometer for mental health in a society because money is on the line. And so there's no politics involved. It's balance sheet, which is really black and white. And so when we started going into the study, uh, the growth of mental illness um, and the effects that it was having on broader society. Um, when it came to do this podcast, I thought you'd be really good to chat about it. So considering you're the only person I know that's ever talked about this, can you sort of walk me through what it was, what it covered and let's kind of dive into it. Yeah. Okay. So, so it was called the ACE study. Um, ACE stands for adverse childhood experiences. Um, I guess in terms of therapy, before the 90s, most therapies focused on adults and, you know, um, identifying and diagnosing anxiety or depression and then treating the anxiety or depression. Um, but there wasn't kind of much thought put into why they were there or why they existed. In the 90s, this huge health 
healthcare company in America called Kaiser Permanente decided to survey their members. Um, I, I believe it was so that they could look at why they had participants dropping out of their programs, they had increased insurance premiums, and trying to, um, you know, hand in hand, get better outcomes for clients and save money. Yeah. Um, and so they, they did a survey where they kind of looked at all the health outcomes. So first of all, they got a cohort of about 17,000 adults um, who were, you know, it was one of the major cities in America. So they were predominantly white, um, college educated, middle class cohort, similar to what we might see here in Sydney um, or the Central Coast. And they looked at their health outcomes. So these were people in their 40s, 50s, 60s who had already you know, had, had been through health outcomes um, that they could report on, like they you know, smoked, they used alcohol, used illicit drugs, um, had heart disease, obesity, um, had attempted suicide in their life, all of these kind of health um, outcomes. And so they kind of measured what health outcomes they had and then wanted to look at what had happened to these people um, you know, 40, 50 years prior in their childhood and see if there was any link between the experiences that we have as kids and the health outcomes that we have later on in life. Um, and so they asked participants 10 questions about their experiences of um, abuse as children, neglect as children and other household characteristics like anyone in their family was incarcerated. And what they found was an overwhelming and at the time very surprising link between the experiences that we have as kids and the health outcomes that we have later on in life. Um, and so it's called the ACE study. Um, and there are 10 ACEs or adverse childhood experiences. Um, and what they did is they allocated a number. So if, if you had experienced five out of 10 of the adverse childhood experiences, you'd get a score of five. If you'd experienced none, you would get a score of zero. What I love about this study is that um, one out of three people reported that they had not experienced adverse childhood. Um, oh, so what, was it one in three, none at all? Cool. So one in three people in our society had amazing childhoods, which is something I love to hear. I'm working in welfare and child protection as a social worker. I think my job day to day is I see lots of families that are going through lots of struggles. So it's really comforting for for us in the, um, in the profession to kind of know that one in three people out there are having amazing childhoods. But they found that um, 10%, so one one in 10 had had six or more adverse childhood experiences. And they, they found this link between the more childhood experience, adverse childhood experiences that you've experienced, the higher your risk is of being a smoker, using alcohol um, or being dependent on alcohol, having attempted suicide, having um, heart disease and a whole bunch of other chronic um, illnesses. And ultimately, what they've concluded is that the more adverse child or the, any adverse childhood experiences lead to um, a disrupted neurodevelopment or the way that a, the, a child's brain is developing is interrupted. But a human's brain grows 90% of its mass in the first three or five years of life. So what happens to us as a child um, significantly impacts who we are and how we will be for the rest of our lives. 
And we've only, and at the same time this study came out was the same time that IT computer technologies exploded and we started to be able to do brain scans and understand the human brain better. And so, you know, in the 50s, 60s, 70s, you always heard about, you know, these sayings that kids are resilient, it doesn't matter what happens to them, they'll get over it. But in the 90s, through this study and with the rise of technology, we actually learned that the opposite was true, that what happens to children actually really does matter um, and it significantly impacts the way that their brain organises and the way that they then develop socially, emotionally um, and cognitively, which in the ACE study talks about how um, that development then leads to whether the person will adopt health risk behaviours, which lead to disease, disability and social problems, um, and ultimately, um, unfortunately, early death. Um, and so, I mean, we see this in Australia with severely... I guess, traumatised population groups. When I think about the Aboriginal population in Australia, it's well known that they have a life expectancy um, that's 20 years lower than uh, white middle-class Australians and there's the government policy around closing the gap to try to address some of those issues. And when you look at the treatment of Aboriginal people and the trauma that they've experienced for the last 250 years, kind of, you know, we kind of we're seeing this even here in Australia for... A long time but the ACE study is coming out in the 90s has kind of given us a way to understand why this is the case. Yeah so essentially um, childhood trauma I guess has a, a huge effect on someone for the rest of their life. Um, so one in three live in the dream which is awesome to hear. Uh, one in ten are, are obviously ha- going to have a hard time of it and then you've got a large chunk in between. Yeah. Now um, my guess is that probably half the people you meet with on a day-to-day basis, or let, let's call it a half of a, a client base for a financial planner, is, gonna, is going to be you know, never have experienced any of these ACE problems, and the other half have probably experienced certain accelerating, some more than others. Um, and, and this is while this is never going to be a conversation an advisor would ever have, with a client they'd never talk about uh, any potential childhood trauma but it's good to sort of understand the concept that you know one in two of your clients are probably gonna at some point in their life suffer a a mental illness um, for at least you know a small amount of time and that a lot of it comes from childhood and sort of unavoidable what have you seen to be successful um, behavior moderations that people who have a lot of these problems early on in life who then go on to live happy, fruitful, successful lives, what are some of the behaviors uh, that they display? Because what that's that cohort, and I'd imagine that it'd be a pretty small cohort, that cohort of people probably have to some extent some good tips and tricks, right, on how to uh, how to handle for for even myself, for for others, uh, you know, even advisors. Like financial planners have gone through more change than pretty much any other job out there over the last few years, and it's caused a lot of problems. We've seen a bunch of suicides in in the profession, um, especially over the last twelve months. So here's a question: What are some strategies that we can implement in our lives? 
to overcome the difficult time that the industry is going through that we might be able to learn from people who have been doing it successfully elsewhere. Yeah, wow. And that's, that's huge. And often we're thinking about our clients and how to support our clients, but part of the recognition of um, the ACE study is that it's us as well as practitioners who have been through this and need to work through our own stuff. And how hard is it to support someone on the other side of the table and have some of those soft skills to be able to um, identify and respond appropriately to them and maybe give some advice when we're going through similar things ourselves. And look, I mean, num- number one thing I think for mental health, the same as physical health, is speaking to someone if you're not sure about what's going on. Um, and number one advice would be to speak to your GP. New South Wales, especially in New South Wales in Australia, we have a better outcomes mental health system where you can go to your doctor and say, you know, I'm feeling like this, not doing too well, um, I just need to talk to someone and you can get a referral to a counsellor, psychologist, um, which can be quite scary for people, you know, um, but it's not that scary. Sitting down and talking to someone about what's going on often takes the power out of what's going on. And when we talk about trauma, it often these traumatic events or this stress that's overwhelming us so much sits between the space of needing desperately to talk about it or thinking about it constantly all the time that it's consuming us but not being able to talk about it. Um, And that's where I like to think trauma and stress kind of live. And the moment that we can talk about it in a safe environment with someone that we trust where we know that it's confidential, it's not going to go any further, it actually takes the power out of it and it can help us to make sense of what we're thinking about or what we're going through. Um, at the same time, having a trained professional who can guide us in some of our thinking and help us to challenge some of our thoughts. I think that's probably the main thing um, that I've seen um, over the years, that when people are going through, you know, and I've seen people going through, like, you know, not only childhood traumas, but lots of us have been through grief and loss um, of close loved ones. Um, traumatic experiences ourselves we might have had car accidents or seen other people be in accidents or um, things that have happened in our life where they're overwhelming and our bodies aren't well maybe our bodies are kind of designed to react in a way that protects ourselves but um, I guess that's not very helpful when you've got a job and you need to show up nine to five or you've got a mortgage and you need to pay the bills that um, going and talking to a professional is probably the best thing that you can do to try to start to make sense of right, what's going on and what what do I need to do to move through this. And the reason why New South Wales government puts so much, I would imagine, dollars towards looking after the mental health of as many people as possible via the GP referral system, is that just because they're fully aware of the negative impact that mental illness has on uh, society and at early intervention can, can keep people on the straight and narrow, so to speak. hundred percent. I was reading somewhere that, so having a look at the, um, the Australian Institute of health and welfare welfare, they estimate that spending on mental health-related services in Australia from all, all sources, government and non-government, was around $9 billion per year. Wow. Yeah, that's a, that's, that's a lot. So in order to justify that cost, 
there must be a very, very heavy cost on the other side of not doing it. Yeah, and I guess, you know, when you think about anxiety, depression, they're illnesses that are debilitating and stop people from um, productively contributing to society. So um, it's going to be harder to take kids to school. It's going to be harder to get out of bed and go to work. It's going to be harder to, you know, go to work and focus on clients when your depression and your anxiety from the experiences that you've had mean that you're constantly replaying your trauma or you're in a state where you've got no motivation. So it's in the government's best interest in terms of our, um, our economy, um, our capitalist society, to keep people working, keep the economy growing. Um, and so from a financial perspective, it makes sense to um, fund and in, in, in invest in a mental health service that's going to support people. But from a you know, person-centred approach, it helps people feel better um, as, you know, look after their kids better, provide better services to clients and it helps the whole of society to function better and um, increases quality of life for everyone. If everyone's doing, you know, if your neighbour's doing well, it's more likely you're going to be doing better because you're not kind of having these experiences um, of people going through really difficult stuff around you. Yeah. $9 billion is huge. And, and if I was to think about the impact that mental health has on society, and I can summarize it in that figure is $9 billion. That's enormous. Um, I think a lot of the stats we're talking about today just goes to show that advisors um, need to play a better role, a more, a more substantial role, or, or at least start taking on the role because it's kind of interesting. Advisors... Um, really, the if you think about it, accountants were probably best placed to become advisors. And for whatever reason, um, mostly around personality, advisors created a profession where there previously wasn't one. What we're kind of looking at is considering the amount of mental illness that exists in this country to the tune of $9 billion per year. It goes without saying that if advisors don't take on this role of being early identifiers and considering their role in the ecosystem of someone's relationship, um, a map of who they're connected with, and then there could very well be another industry that pops up to take it because you've got psychologists, right? And psychologists are very much looking at money stresses and they're probably considering well the closer we get to solving this key problem the more, the less people are going to be stressed and the less mental health problems there's going to exist i i can kind of see it and it is it's beginning to happen that advisors are starting to play a bigger role in that life planning that psychological um skill set with their clients however up until i heard recently about this mental health first aid course there was really, uh, unless you wanted to go on to become a, a psychologist, it's kind of a bit out of your league. But I like that there are some easy first steps um, because obviously the, the need is there and every business person out there knows that when there's a need, there's revenue. Um, and so there's a need there. So it makes sense if advisors are in a position to do it, 
that we should not be the accountants that advisors ended up uh, creating a new profession for. So, yeah, man, like... Um, and, and Clay, I think that there's lots of professions that are starting, that are getting to the point where they're noticing that these soft skills are highly um, sought after in the industry. There's almost like a, in lots of areas, there's an oversaturation of professionals and people are looking for, um, and if you think about, you know, that two out of three people have had some kind of adverse childhood experience, half of Australians um, will experience mental illness in their life. A lot of people who have trauma, who have, you know, some kind of um, some impact on the way that they're functioning every day. And so if I'm one of those people and I have a choice to go to a financial planner, a financial advisor who doesn't have any soft skills and who just tells me about my um, what I need to do or a financial advisor who has the soft skills that they listen to me, that they can hear what I'm saying, they understand maybe some of the reasons why I'm making these decisions. Um, I feel listened to. I feel safe with them. Um, they just have an awareness. One of, one of the best things that I heard to summarise the whole ACE study and all of this research around trauma, um, Oprah Winfrey runs a few schools in Africa or maybe a school or a few schools. So she got on a trauma guru, a trauma guide in America called Bruce Perry, who's um, at the forefront of implementing a lot of this research. And she went through all the training with him and implemented a trauma-informed trauma approach in her schools. And she summarised all of the research by saying that the biggest thing that she's learnt from going through all of this is that now when she looks at students, she looks at her clients and they're being full-on or they're being in pain or whatever, the biggest change in her behaviour is now she doesn't think what's wrong with this person. She thinks what happened to this person. And just that shift in thinking, it's not thinking what's wrong with this person, you know, they're different or they're annoying or whatever. It's actually trying to think outside the box and think behind the behaviour and think what happened to them. Why are they acting like this? Why are they making these decisions? And just in that act of thinking differently, you're already practicing mental health first aid because you're thinking about the person and the reasons why they're making their man. Awesome. Um, look, obviously this is a really difficult topic um, to, from a financial planning point of view, look at the impacts of mental health on society. Um, so I just really wanted to thank you for coming on, sharing with us what you, what you've learned. I know you're just started a, a legal degree as well. So uh, does this, where does this go, mate? Do, do you go on to then, you know, become a defender of those who've uh, gone through, you know, childhood trauma or, or what's the story there with you? Yeah, look, I mean, as a social worker, I've worked in court um, a lot over the years, um, supporting families who are going through the court process and just have been often frustrated um, by exactly what we're talking about, professionals, lawyers who lack the soft skills to understand, you know, amazing lawyers who have such a deep knowledge of the law, but the application and soft skills to be able to support their client through the process was lacking. And so I guess seeing that um, and working alongside that just gave me um, a passion, I guess, as a social worker um, to become a lawyer so I can support families who are going through the court. Um, and not just support them legally, but support them um, 
you know, socially and um, emotionally as they're going through the process as well. So I've just started started a law degree. You know, it's going to take me five years to finish part time. I don't know where it's going to take me, um, but you know, it was something that attracted me. So I put my hat in the ring, and we'll see where I end up. Mate, that's awesome. All right. Well, thanks again for coming on, mate. No worries. Thanks so much for having me. And look, best of luck to you and all the financial advisors. Like I said earlier, I really liked that you opened this up by saying that financial advisors don't need to, um, you know, do anything with this. It's just kind of recognizing it and and having an understanding of what supports there are in your city or in your community um, with number one support being GP. But there's also, you know, fantastic um, online or phone-based services that clients can ring, like Lifeline, like Beyond Blue, that are good for financial advisors to know that if they can notice it, if they notice their client isn't doing too well, just to say, hey, look, here's a couple of numbers, but I can talk to your GP. Um, you know, we always promote client self-determination, so it's up to the client really with their own with their health and their mental health to make their own decision. We never want to um, judge people or force them into doing this. But it's just a suggestion. Hey, look, I can see you're not doing too well. Um, here's a couple of numbers that I know that are really helpful. Um, and at the same time, they're really good resources for all of us professionals to call if we're not feeling okay. Brilliant. Thanks so much, man. No worries.